I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient to modern times and everything in between. You can find more podcast episodes, written interviews, word games, and the most detailed military history timeline on the web at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. We're on YouTube at WarScholar1945. You can send comments and suggestions to info at warscholar.org. Are you a fan of World War II-era music, culture, and fashion? Now is the opportunity to participate in a free ticket giveaway for the musical Bandstand playing at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. from March 3rd to 8th, 2020. From three-time Tony winner and Hamilton choreographer Andy Blankenbuehler comes an upbeat musical about American servicemen returning from World War II. Our hero, Private First Class Nowitzki, is a struggling singer and songwriter home from war. He enters a national music competition with fellow servicemen, and despite facing the impossible, they create a band that moves a nation and which will move you as well. More information about the show and the links to the ticket giveaway are on my website and the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. John Kuhn, author of The 100 Worst Military Disasters in History, published by ABC Clio, uh, and I believe it's published this month. I don't know if it's out yet or about to be, but thank you for speaking with me. Oh, no problem. So first, um, I know you've written several books. Um, how did you uh, come up with the idea of writing this book? Well, well, I didn't really come up with the idea. Um, what happened was uh, I've written a couple books for Prager already, um, and uh, because of that, uh, they contacted they contacted uh, our department because we you know we've got one of the biggest military history departments in the world, if not the biggest military history department in the world, with PhDs who specialize in military history at, at Fort Leavenworth, which is where I work at the Command General Staff College. So they sent us uh, sort of a cattle call, uh, is what I call it, and uh, it got it got pushed around initially. Uh, our uh, our director was thinking we'd all write, you know, one or two chapters or however many chapters we wanted to write it would be. But ABC Clio or Prager didn't didn't want that. They wanted they wanted at most a multi authored work that, that had two or three authors at the most. So so I volunteered to kind of head up that and I roped in two other guys into the into the uh, into the project. Um one of them dropped out, and one of them only wrote about five of the entries of the 100 disasters that we look at. So, so that's kind of the long, that's the long way of uh, telling you how I came came about to kind of become a lead author on the project. Okay, so tell me about the focus of the book. How did you how do you lay it out? Is it chronological or thematic? Uh, we go. Uh, we deliberately picked uh, chronological. Uh, I, I think human beings are more prone to kind of go go through time in a linear fashion. Uh, as far as I know, you know, unless there's something going on that, I, that, that I'm not familiar with, and that could certainly be the case, I don't think people are zorching around in time on time machines. So, so uh, I go chronologically, you know, uh, 653 A.D. comes before 654 A.D., comes before the 20th century, comes before... The 21st century. So that's the approach. It's chronological. Mm-hmm. Uh, we divide it up into sort of uh, a couple major parts. Part one is sort of ancient military disasters. Part two is medieval. And again, we understand medieval is a contentious term. We use it basically to refer to a particular time period, not really to a particular sort of cultural or economic approach mm-hmm. to uh, uh, historical interpretation. Uh, part three is uh, military disasters from the early modern period. So we're talking about, you know, beginning with about the 15th century. And part four is 19th century. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the 19th century. We you know, wars are breaking out everywhere. And um, and then uh, recent military disasters is the last section. Okay. And um, I see that, at least in the book description, it says you uh, talk about military strategy and politics. Um, do you get into operations and tactics much, or does it stay at that high level? Well, you know, we're taking a look at military disasters. Most of the disasters are centered on 
day-long, maybe multi-day-long engagement. All right? So we take the Klaus Witsian approach of there's engagements, there's campaigns, and then there's war. And, and we don't limit ourselves to just battles or just engagements or just campaigns, although using campaigns as military disasters, I think, is, is you know, it's not that innovative as far as I'm concerned, but you don't see it a lot in military history where people kind of talk about a particular military disaster in the framework of an entire campaign. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the most famous disasters of all time is the campaign of 1812 of Napoleon in Russia. So, so you know, we didn't, we didn't limit ourselves, and we don't limit ourselves to campaigns either. We also have war. So there's, there's some wars that we consider uh, disasters. Uh, uh, and uh, one of the wars that we pitched that way, and it's, it's, it's my chapter, but one of the ones that I did is the last disaster of the book, which is, uh, which is the, the global war on terror. Let me see. I, uh, Iraqi freedom. Actually, I, I pitch Iraqi freedom not as a campaign, but as an entire sort of war beginning in 2003 and then ending, uh, ending, you know, with the recapture of Mosul in 2018. So, uh, but it's just a, it's a big disaster from the beginning to the end. So, uh, so, you know, that's probably controversial. Um, so we, we, we tried to look for disasters. So the introduction, so I wrote the introduction. We kind of lay out this whole idea that, you know, our criteria for disasters weren't just, you know, who beat the other guy, you know, who, who beat up the other guy more, you know, who took the most casualties or, uh, who retreated the furthest. And we didn't really use those as sort of criteria. We looked at disasters that destroyed armies, destroyed states, uh, ended up in a political result. Uh, and the political result is something that we liked. We liked a disaster that had a political result, you know, so, so we, you know, you get this, you get the, uh, Protestant cause in the 30 years war. You know, after Breitenfeld is, is sort of rejuvenated, you know, and, and that that cause again is undermined a couple of years later when when the Swedish army uh, gets 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 annihilated at Nurmagen. So we uh, so we kind of took that approach. Um, um, my, you know, the only ones that I can guarantee totally adhere to that approach are mine. All right, uh, but you know that's ninety five percent of the book. So so that's that's pretty much most of the book. Uh, Although my other author, David Holden, uh, he kind of adhered to that approach too, but he did a lot of the more ancient stuff. So uh, he, he did he did uh, a couple ancient ancient uh, campaigns and engagements. So so most most of it's got my fingerprint on it uh, in, in one way or another that way. So so that's sort of the criteria that we're looking at. Um, I, I could actually go to the go to the uh, go to the intro and, and kind of just show you how it starts out. You know, what are military disasters? What are their dynamics? What are the common threads that link them? You know, these are the sorts of questions we have to address in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, uh, I do want to emphasize for your listeners, you know, I tried to get the name of the book changed. Uh, I said, hey, this is not the 100 worst military disasters. This is 100 military disasters from military history. Okay? So that's what the book is. The book is sort of 100 military disasters. There's really... You know, in terms of, you know, an argument about are these the worst or are these the top 100, we don't make that argument. We don't claim to make that argument. Mm-hmm. Somebody else could come up with a list of 100 that they think are the worst. A few of ours might be on their list. A few of ours might not be on their list. We don't care. It's 100 military disasters. So I want to make sure your readers know that. When you read the intro, you realize that right away. I put that in the intro, too. But they mm-hmm. refused to change the title of the book. <laughs> You know, but they still paid me, so oh well. Yeah, I know it sounds more. You know, it catches more eyes when when you throw in that worst part. Oh yeah, you gotta have a you gotta have a, an absolute or a hyperbole or something like that. And I understand the marketing on that. And and you know the way they pitched the book to us was the 100 worst military disasters. But but you know I made the decision early on that I wasn't going to limit myself to the worst because I wanted to get a broad spread. I wanted to get more than just sort of the the standard disasters, and I wanted to. I wanted to go to Asia. I wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to go to Japan. You know, I wanted to go to the New World. I wanted to, to go to some other places besides Europe to look for military disasters. I wanted to go to China. Uh, we also wanted to take the disaster motif out on the seas. A lot of times, you see these collections, and you know, you, you might have one naval battle in the whole freaking book. Well, that's not the case here. We got more than a couple naval battles mm-hmm. in in the book. 
So how many uh, legal campaign? Okay. Um, how many uh, civil wars and revolutions did you include? Because those have s- somewhat of a different dynamic than your standard nation-on-nation conflict. Well, some of the engagements occur within what you might call a revolution. For example, the Yorktown campaign, uh, or, or, uh, or uh, you know, there's the French Revolution. Uh, as far as civil wars go, uh, be- because of the complexity of civil wars, we're sort of limited in the amount of discussion that we could have. So for the most part, that is, the book does does overwhelmingly favor sort of uh, sort of large-scale conventional warfare between fleets and armies and air forces. So uh, so you don't have as many of those probably as you want uh, in, in, in this one. Like, for example, uh, you know, the, uh, the insurgency in Spain against Napoleon. Uh, we, we don't have that in here. Um, you know, on, you know, if I had to do again, I'd probably replace some of these with some of mine. But you know, part of the reason the the list came out the way it was is is by the time uh, the third author dropped out, we already sort of had the list firmed up, and uh, and so some of the things that some of us would have liked to have done, we didn't get to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got something from the English Civil War, which you don't see a lot of. You don't see the English Civil War a whole lot. Uh, the Thirty Years' War is is pretty popular. Uh, I'm looking. Uh, I'm looking back in some of the. Uh, we've got. Uh, we've got some uh, some Islamic uh, wars and battles in there. Young Luke's in there. Um, and uh, um, let me see. Let me see. Other than Iraqi freedom, which does discuss the insurgency a little bit, uh, Vietnam's in there. We've got some Vietnam stuff in there. Uh, the Tet Offensive's in there and everything. But in terms of uh, the overall focus of the book. It tends to be more focused on uh, on uh, on conventional warfare. I mean, we do have, you know, especially in the modern, in the recent, you know, contemporary chapter, you know, recent military disasters, you'll, you'll tend to see more and more uh, uh, sort of non-traditional sort of things, um, you know, like, like in Vietnam. I'm speaking with Dr. John Kuhn, co-author of The 100 Worst Military Disasters in History. You can find him by Googling... Hand Grenade of the Month, and H-War, and you'll find his column. If you like this podcast, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com or warscholar1945 on YouTube and like me and follow me on those sites. Now back to the podcast. How many um, How many of these uh, military disasters are attributable to technology that one side had that the other wasn't prepared for? Almost none of them. Hmm. Almost none of them. Um, and that's probably because of me. Because, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of times you'll, you'll, you'll think you're going to get this big victory. And, 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 and more often than not, when we talk about, like, like uh, for, uh, um, let me see if I can find it. For France 1940, a lot of people think France 1940 is due to technology. It's not. It's due to tactics. It's due to luck. It's due to contingency. I mean, you know, the the airplanes and the tanks that the Germans have aren't any better. In many cases, are not are not as good as the ones. I mean, the Spitfire and the Hawker Hurricane are are every bit as good as the Messerschmitt 109. You know, the um, you know maybe they don't have the ground attack aircraft, but the Germans are still working on things. And if Stukas are caught without fighter escort, they're they're you know they get decimated by by Spitfires and Hawker Hurricanes. So. So you know, there's not a whole lot uh, of these uh, operations that that we really make a big deal about how technology was so much better. More often than not, we're looking at at sort of uh, the holistic approach, where where you'll get a uh, where you'll get a solution to a problem that has to do with tactics, doctrine, and organization more than it and leadership. And leadership's a big deal. Uh, then it has to do with some silver bullet that somebody thinks they've got. Uh, you know, I mean, do you really consider uh, uh, counter-marching, uh, counter-marching, counter-fire, uh, linear tactics as uh, technology? I don't. You know, so it's, it's tactics, you know. Mm-hmm. The musket, the arc the headlock, the matchlock, they've been around for 100 years uh, when those tactics came along. So more often than not, what we'll see, for example, if the girl lifts a Tana offensive, is, is new tactics. Or in the case of the Germans, you know, rupturing... Uh, rupturing the Imperial Russian uh, flank and, 
and essentially uh, cutting off the salient of Poland and winning this huge victory on the Eastern Front in World War One. Uh, that's really due to, you know, the Germans kind of doing what the Germans like to do, which is maneuver warfare with some, you know, a couple new things that they're doing with artillery, but they haven't invented anything new in, in terms of the artillery or anything mm-hmm. to make that uh, offensive as successful as it is. It's, it, it's successful because, you know, the Germans have Hans von Fake as the chief of staff. <laughs> he comes up with a really good plan mm-hmm. and really good coordinated uh, uh, sequence of engagements to win that campaign. Um, how about logistics? Um, does that factor in much? Yeah, a lot. You will see that a lot. You'll see a lot of that in a lot of these operations where logistics will, will be a key factor in the success or the failure of, of a particular operation. Um, you know, for, uh, for, uh, for uh, the Germans, some of, the, some of their big disasters, and some of them lie in the book, by the way, are really, are really you know, because they're so, they're so, uh, they're so poor at logistics. Um, uh, or, or they're, or they're, uh, they, they get stretched out and they get culminated and then they, then they're ripe, you know, for a smack. Uh, Guadalcanal is a campaign where logistics, uh, is, is one of the deciding factors. It's not the only deciding factor, but it's a huge deciding factor. The Japanese, you know, are good fighters, uh, really, really good fighters. They have sort of this reputation as jungle supermen, but even jungle, jungle supermen who don't have proper medical care, who don't take quinine, who aren't getting fed a certain minimum amount of calories a day are going to lose if they don't have a logistics plan in place to help them. And uh, and Japanese, you know, the Japanese can run troops down the slot and dump them on the Guadalcanal and let them, you know, hike overland to be slaughtered by the Marines and then the Army, but uh, they can't feed them. So, uh, yeah, they'll lose that campaign in great part just because of logistics. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of the, the winning sides in, in this collection had... Um Good, but before the war, the campaign, um, well developed, uh, sort of uh, military training officer corps, that sort of thing, who were more. Does does better preparation beforehand factor a lot into it? For some of them, it does. For some of it, does. I mean, uh, let me see if I can find uh, what I put in the introduction about that, because I've actually got a little spot in the introduction where I talk a little bit about that and tell, tell the readers kind of be on the lookout for it. Let me see here. Yeah. Well, this might this might help help you understand it. So, so another fe- feature of, of of military disasters is you know professionalism mm-hmm. uh, of the army. So uh, you know, and oftentimes uh, one side thinks it's going to win precisely because it does believe itself to sort of be the paradigm paradigm military that they that they sort of have the lock and the key for military professionals. And I would say. That's how the United States military looks at itself today. Is, you know, so we, we sort of set the norms and the standards for what military professionalism looks like. Mm-hmm. But occasionally that meets a rude awakening. It's not in the it's not in the in, in this collection, but Balmy is a case of that where a much more professional army is defeated by, you know, a bunch of amateurs who do have, you know, some professional artillery mm-hmm. uh, in support of them. So all they've got is enthusiasm and good artillery. Kind of like the Union Army, the first year of the war, the Civil War. So um, you know uh, they win. Uh, not the Union Army, but the French Army involved me. They win because because of that. But sometimes professionalism, you know, doesn't do it. It it, it doesn't measure up. The same thing happens to the Germans uh, in uh, in World War One. Uh, but they, by far, uh, in terms of being the approach from Dover when it comes to tactics and doctrine, the, the Germans are are in many cases far ahead of uh, their peers. Um, uh, in some cases, their peers, they learn from their peers. Uh, we'll forget about the Russians in, 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 uh, in World War I, uh, but there's a couple cases where the Russians actually do very, very well, but the Germans learn. So more often, it's not so much the professionalism, although that's a big deal. You know, I mean, if you put a bunch of professionals uh, at Rourke's Drift against a Zulu Limpy, and they've got a pretty good defensive schema on interior lines in a fortified position, they are going to prevail, you know. Uh, there's some contingency and some, some things that play a role in that. But, you know, eventually, uh, you know, they'll go to Ulindi and, and it'll be all professionalism there. So one, one force has just got, you know, a different century kind of professionalism versus the other. But more often than not, uh, what we'll see is it's, 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 especially in campaigns and wars, it's the side that learns quicker 
mm. that tends to uh, that tends to prevail. It's a side that's willing to adapt. Um, and then stuff counts. I mean, when you get a continental power up with lots of resources and a strategic depth, we're talking the Soviet Union, we're talking the United States, mm. it's really tough to defeat that power. If they've got strategic depth geographically and, and they've got staying power, it becomes more and more difficult, you know, no matter how professional you are, how much you're, how good you are at killing the enemy. You know, you might have a two-to-one, you know, ratio of killing, of killing your enemies to your losses, but that doesn't matter when your enemies not outnumber you, you know, ten-to-one, you know. So, uh, uh, so, so, again, learning is a big part of uh, an advantage in some of these. And so in some of these cases, we'll see, uh, 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 armies, militaries that will show up on the campaign or show up at an engagement, and they, they simply will be, uh, in the battle, they'll adapt quicker, or in the campaign they'll adapt quicker, or as the course of the war goes on, they'll just adapt better and quicker. Um, probably the biggest, advan- uh, the biggest uh, example of sort of preparation before the fight, you know, we might think about amphibious warfare in World War II and the, and the fact that the United States uh, Marine Corps uh, had, had put in so much effort into trying to come up with a, a pretty uh, uh, a pretty robust, uh, uh, effective uh, amphibious warfare doctrine, mm-hmm. you know. And you know what they didn't have was they didn't have a lot of the they didn't have a lot of the technology. You know, they had the doctrine, but they didn't have the LFTs and the Amtraks. You know, but uh, but uh, but once that system got going and once they you know got sort of the, some of the right designs. Uh, you know, that preparation in the interwar period, mentally and doctrinally, uh, as underwritten by the American industrial base, uh, was a huge advantage for the Americans. The Japanese never figured out a way to stop it, you know. They, mm-hmm. they you know, the only thing they could do was, was kind of turn to attrition. But the Americans picked the fight. The Japanese weren't setting the pace. I mean, uh, with Guadalcanal on, uh, the Japanese didn't choose any of the battles uh, in the Pacific side of the war. Now, on the mainland in, in China and Burma, they they were still they would still go on the offensive and and and, and take the initiative and everything and lose in Burma. But uh, but uh, that's an example, I think, uh, and you'll see that on a couple of the campaigns and the engagements in the uh, in the 20th century stuff uh, about uh, amphibious warfare and the success of amphibious warfare. Mm-hmm. Now, how about um, the naval campaigns? What sort of issues do you see there that that, uh, cause um, disasters? Well, more often than not, you know, the disaster results because somebody just forgets about water, uh, like they do today. They just don't realize that, you know, water plays a big deal in projection of power, and so they, they assume things away. So with the first naval battle at Salamis, all the way to sort of the last naval battle that we get uh, at the end of the book uh, uh, with, uh, let me see if I've got uh, the Falklands in here. I don't know if I've got the Falklands in here or not. No, I don't have the Falklands in here. Yeah. But uh, with sort of the, some of the last naval battles that we take a look at in, in World War II, uh, there's a little bit of naval stuff in the Iran-Iraq War, the first Gulf War uh, from 1980 to 1988. But more more often than not, the, the the recurring theme in naval battles tends to be that one side uh, one side doesn't really account for something at sea that the that the other side does. You know, the U-boats, for example, this whole idea that the Germans are like, well, we don't care about your surface fleet. We're just gonna we're just gonna sink anything that can carry food and, and starve you out. You know, so that's a that's a, that's a disaster. You know, initially for the British, it's a huge disaster. What happens to them in in, in early 1917? They they come damn damn near close to losing the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so uh, and we don't realize until after the war. That's the great thing about a book like this is now you have access to all this stuff. Now that you can take a look at it, you can sort of read you know Herbert Hoover's you know memoirs. When you went over there and found out that you know 90 percent of Europe was starving, you know, and that the British probably were going to be the last ones to starve. It was the French, the Italians, and everybody else would starve before before the British really started starving to death. So it was really it was really a continent where people were starving. And Herbert Hoover got over there; it was a nightmare for him to organize the food aid and everything. So, hmm. so the naval piece is is uh, kind of takes that route. Occasionally, we'll run into two fairly well matched powers, like at Lepanto. You know, you'll have the Holy League uh, running into uh, the fleet of Suleiman the Magnificent. And it'll be, uh, you know, and there it'll be uh, just kind of a knockdown, drag out fight. 
uh, that really hinges on, on tactics more than anything else. Um, uh, whereas, you know, in a case like, uh, like Midway, uh, the Japanese, you know, will find what the Japanese have done is they, they've sort of underestimated their opponents, they've overestimated their own capabilities, and then they're fatally undermined before, before the battle even begins because of the Battle of the Coral Sea. So they kind of go into the fight, uh, uh, without a complete understanding of their, of their own, of their own vulnerabilities as a fleet. And, uh, and so they lose and they lose big. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm with those guys that take the viewpoint that Midway, Midway, because of the, because of the Figgin advantage, which is one of those cases, you know, now that's, now Figgin isn't a new technology, but often, oftentimes it'll be a big advantage for who's ever using it successfully when the other side just simply says, you know, our codes are unbreakable and, and we don't have to worry that the enemy's reading our mail, you know, and then the Germans were the same way. So, so, uh, so Midway's kind of a fascinating case where, where the Japanese really do have the better fleet, but uh, but they get defeated uh, for overestimation. It's not an accident. It's not a miracle. It's uh, it's just plain old underestimation of the enemy and overestimation of your own capabilities and hubris. You know, and hubris is a constant theme throughout most of these. I mean, it's one of the major themes of the book. Is most of these disasters uh, have a link back to hubris, like Syracuse. We do Syracuse where, you know, the Greeks in uh, the Peloponnesian Wars go to Syracuse and basically lose their entire army and their entire navy in one campaign mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and almost lose the war uh, in that one campaign. They, they managed to kind of fight back, but, but we don't go into that in the book, but we just talk about Syracuse because the way the chapter on Syracuse ends is, you know, it, it's gone. The Athenian fleet is gone. Not, and Athenian strategy is entirely dependent on power projection with a fleet. So hubris is a big one throughout the book. You'll see a lot of hubris, like the Iraqi Freedom chapter. Uh, it's just oozing with hubris. Huh. So um, I'm curious. A couple a uh, couple wars come to mind. I'm curious if they're in the book. Uh, the Russo-Japanese War and the Mexican-American War. Yeah, the Russo-Japanese War is in there. Uh, what we do with the Russo-Japanese War is. Uh, is we do let me see the Battle of the Japan Sea, which is also known as the Battle of Tsushima Strait. Um, the Mexican War, I think we left that one out. Um, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting war, uh, but in terms of uh, anybody, any of the authors really being excited about writing about it, we we had said we kind of went with the Texas Revolution. So we we have a couple things from the Texas Revolution. We've got Tippecanoe in there. Hmm. Uh, but that's not that's uh, war that time same time frame as War of eighteen twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the siege of Nanjing during the Taiping Rebellion. Now that's in there, um, and that that's uh, boy that's intense. Uh, and one of the reasons we put that in there was so so anybody who reads about it will realize that there's this uh, Holocaust that takes place in the nineteenth century in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking. No, we don't have anything in there. So so yeah, we we picked. Uh, we picked a war where 20 million people get killed instead of uh, a war where, what, 10,000 get killed? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what we did. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. scale, yeah, in some cases, scale did matter. Yeah. You know, when we're talking, you know, tens of millions of people getting killed, uh, we, we tried to make sure we paid attention to those sorts of catastrophes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm gonna, so before I turn to the resources you used, are there any other... Um, campaigns or maybe other issues you want to t- you want to mention that you touch on in the book that we haven't talked about yet no just uh, yeah, i think we've covered them all you know in summary we wanted to make sure we paid attention to the rest of the world besides uh, besides europe and north america particularly the american civil war mm-hmm. which gets way too much uh way too much focus i think by americans um and and we wanted to make sure we got the navy piece in there and the air air force piece in there. There's a couple mm. campaigns that are strictly about air power, so we got we got those in there. Um, and uh, uh, I, we do we do emphasize that we don't come up with a with a new taxonomy of failure. We kind of direct the readers towards Cohen and Gooch military misfortunes mm. if they want to read you know something that's just a little bit more scholarly on. Uh, to, to find out about uh, taxonomy of failure, so we don't we don't come up with any sort of new taxonomy of, of disaster and failure. We we think we've got plenty of words for all this stuff already. Hmm. Uh, and again, uh, that's about all I've got 
uh, on on that. I'm trying to see if there's any other major thing. Um, contingency. I've mentioned it a couple times in passing, but uh, and I think sometimes people have a problem with it. Uh, so, just to be perfectly blunt about it, contingency is Murphy's law. Contingency is serendipity. Contingency is shit happens. Of course, it depends on you know what side of the what side you're on in terms of whether this is serendipity or this is Murphy's law, right? But but the, the fact that that you know that third uh, that third component of Clausewitz's Trinity, which is uncertainty and probability, mm-hmm. is a big deal. Big deal. And what we found looking through these disasters was, more often than not, the role of contingency wasn't so much of, hey, if, you know, for the lack of a horseshoe, I would have won this fight, for example, for, uh, for Richard III uh, at, at, uh, at Bosworth. Uh, more often than not, what contingency does is it leads, it, it, it increases the scale of the disaster. So, for example, at Midway, uh, some lucky things do occur, but they don't really lead to the victory so much as they sort of increase the scale of the disaster that takes place. Mm. So, so we tended to find a little bit of a linkage there between the scale of the disaster and, and the contingency factors and the contingent things that happen. Um, and in some cases, uh, contingency, you know, it could have gone this way or that way, but more often than not, there's no single contingent thing that happens it's usually a, it's usually a bunch of contingent things. I think the great man version of history that we get a lot it will be like, well, this is the key moment in the battle, you know, mm-hmm. when the when the when victory or defeat hung in the balance, you know. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, I don't really like that. We probably are guilty of it in a couple of these uh, write-ups that we have. But uh, but you know, uh, that, that said, I'm not a big fan of that. This was the key moment in the battle, mm-hmm. you know, where success or failure hung in the balance. Uh, more often than not, success and failure are, are, are fluid, dynamic sort of things. There's a trajectory towards failure that happens, and it often happens, as you mentioned, well before the campaign, the war, the battle begins. So uh, and, and it, it takes a lot of contingency sometimes to sort of overcome that tide of failure that's, uh, that's washing your military out with it to see. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Dr. John Kuhn co-author of The 100 Worst Military Disasters in History. You can find him by Googling Hand Grenade of the Month and H-War, and you'll find his column. If you like this podcast, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com or warscholar1945 on YouTube, and like me and follow me on those sites. Now back to the podcast. So what uh, what did you use um, for the research for the different battles? Or, or uh, well, we have, I mean, there's, we all had extensive libraries. Uh, you know, we had the entire Combined Arms Research Library at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to go into. Hmm. And so every single battle we had, or every single war, every single campaign, I mean, there's entire sections of the library that have, you know, accounts of, of these different things. So, uh, so, what, so, what the, so what we do is at the end of, of each disaster, for example, uh, Megiddo, which is uh, uh, which is an ancient battle, a biblical battle uh, between Cutmos the Third and uh, the, the king, the kingdoms of Canaan. We'll, we'll put what the uh, what our resources were at the at the end of of the uh, of the of the book. It doesn't include all the resources, so this is not a footnoted scholarly work. This is really more of a popular history work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried to make sure, though, that you know that. That you know, in addition to using sort of recent scholarship, you know, in some cases you you want to you want to you want to list something classic. For example, the Battle of Pharsalus, which I did. You know, I had more recent uh, scholarship by guys like Goldsworthy and guys like that. But I also you know threw Delbrook in there. His his account of the Battle of Pharsalus is really fascinating. It's it's sort of a historiographical piece, and nice nice for the students to see that. You know, but you know, more often than not, the more recent the more recent accounts of these things uh, are leveraging uh, are leveraging either new finds, archaeology, uh, uh, and again, the closer you get to, to to current day, you know, the more the more important uh, primary sources are. You know, um, but in terms of going out and doing a lot of primary research, 
you know, unless it was something that I'd already done, and now I'm speaking just for me, I'm not speaking for Dr. Holton, mm -hmm. but unless it was something that I had some pretty good familiarity with some primary sources on the topic, i.e., for me, World War II, for the most part, or 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 the Cold War stuff, um, uh, then then I tended to use almost entirely secondary sources. So mm -hmm. so most of these sources are secondary sources, but they they tend to sort of be uh, uh, scholarly secondary sources. We we tried to shy away from 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 you know popular secondary sources mm -hmm. and kind of stick with with sort of the uh, sort of the, the academic scholarly secondary sources that that are fairly, fairly well researched, fairly highly thought of uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, by uh, by other scholars. Mm -hmm. And I presume where you where you had maybe conflict in conclusions, um, you you just apply your professional judgment as a historian yourself. Um, right. Yeah. And sometimes we discuss that. You know, like you know, one of the big areas of, of of confusion and uncertainty is in casualties. You know, uh, you know, one account will say, well, this is how many casualties there were, and another account will say, this is how many casualties there were, and, and so you'll say, well, you know, 10,000 casualties, 20,000 casualties, you know, what we do know for sure is that, you know, the Japanese pulled out of Korea and didn't come back for a thousand years, you know. That's uh, one of the battles that I do is the Battle of Bakgang, which is when uh, the Japanese uh, uh, of the Heian period get thrown out of Korea. And they won't come back until uh, the Shogun. Uh, and then they'll get thrown out again by the Chinese. So uh, mm. so both of those accounts, both of those are in there. The first battle of Pyongyang and the battle of Bakking are both both in there. So, um, and, you know, some of it's like for the battle of Bakking, I did have to rely on, on online uh, translated Japanese chronicles. But, again, you know, the problem with that is those chronicles are really propaganda. Yeah, they're primary source, but they're... There are primary source about how the Japanese wanted subsequent generations to think about these things, mm -hmm. but they are a primary source. So, so you know, there were some of those in there. Um, but yeah, yeah. What part of the research did you find most enjoyable? Well, you know, for some of these things, I I had I I had studied them before. Uh, particularly when I was at SAMS, there were a lot of campaigns that that I had looked up when I went through SAMS uh, twenty. 23 years ago, and uh, and so there's a lot of new scholarship in it, intervening 23 years. So that was one of the more enjoyable things, was going and looking at some more updated accounts of some of these things. Overlord, for example, there's a whole lot of new scholarship out on Overlord, uh, and and so uh, so uh, so it's always interesting to sort of look at the new scholarship and, and, and to see the revisionist scholarship, you know, that'll say, wait a second, you know, this... this this wasn't as big of a disaster or as big of a victory as you thought it was, you know, uh, here's what happened afterwards, you know? So, uh, so occasionally, yeah, we do have to sort of put on our, uh, on our, uh, all knowing hat and, and say, well, here's the judgment I'm going to make about this or that or the other. But yeah, running into the, running into new scholarship is, is always fun. Uh, like before Thales, uh, um, you know, I'd never gone back and read the, the account in Delbrook on the Battle of Pharsalus, and then I got to compare it to the most modern accounts of Pharsalus that are out there. And in some cases, you know, big differences, and in other cases, not, not so big differences, you know. So uh, so that was kind of fun, you know, to kind of get back up to speed. It, you know, it's my thing. I, I like military history. I like I like sort of kind of going back and revisiting the scene of the crime and, and seeing, you know, you know, seeing whether the crime... The crime story needs a little update here because you know it's it's like it's like a it's like going to a crime scene to investigate these things. You know we don't really know what happened. You know mm -hmm. a lot of the people that are guilty are dead. You know and you can't interview them. Mm -hmm. What did you find that was most surprising in your research for this book? Gosh, that's a good question. You know how do you judge a good question because you don't have a ready answer, right? <laughs> so uh, I'll probably well the, you know the most surprising thing about it had nothing to do with the. the the surprising thing was was uh, was the fact that I had to write most of it. So that's the most surprising <laughs> thing. I was not planning on writing the bulk of the book. <laughs> I I really was thinking it was going to be a one third, one third, one third effort with these other other two guys. So that mm. that was a not a pleasant surprise. Um, but uh, I maybe it, it's that thing that I mentioned earlier that uh, that it's not really. The disasters can be explained in, in many, many, many ways. Um, 
And I already kind of understood that technology is overrated, so that wasn't a surprise for me. And that the that the sort of the one of the major explanatory things for one side winning and one side losing uh, wasn't so much technology as it was sort of systems and tactics and doctrines and organizations. But the thing I mentioned about contingency that that was kind of a surprise. That the scale of the disaster often had a lot to do with uh, with uh, with the unexpected, with uncertainty, with the fog of war, and with friction. Mm-hmm. So, for all these entries you wrote, was there was there anyone that had a question um, that was particularly difficult for you to come to a conclusion on, or maybe you still have a big question mark about something in that? Yeah, let me take a look at the list. I mean, I, there probably was that for just about every one of the ones that I wrote. Mm-hmm. There was a question in my head, like, "Well, crap." What happened there? You know, what? You know, what was the deal there? You know, how? Why did that happen? Um, you know, for uh, some of this stuff, it's just that uh, you know we're looking back so far into the past, so it's really hard to get any new data or anything like that uh, to kind of kind of look at things. Uh, yeah, some of these, you know, were picked just because we kind of knew them pretty well, like Trafalgar. You know, there was. There were no surprises for me with Trafalgar, even using the more recent stuff that, that's out there on Trafalgar, you know, that's coming out of the United Kingdom, particularly by guys like Roger Knight and guys like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, again, there, the casualties are still a big problem. Um, so if you're trying to find linkages between casualties and failure, um, you've really got to have good numbers, reliable numbers for the casualties. And... You know, and a lot of these armies and navies don't want the enemy to know how bad they've lost, right? You, you know, I mean, look at the Vietnamese, you know, taking away their dead, or the Chinese in the Korean War, you know, uh, slipping away in the dead of night, but taking taking all their casualties and dead bodies with them. So we have no idea how bad we've hurt them or not, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's, that's an area where I have a lot of questions, is in casualties. Um you know, what What was the true scale? Were they more? Were they less? You know, uh, how many, you know, and how much actual fighting? You know, I think when we think about warfare, you know, we have this romantic notion, you know, that it's these mobs of people kind of having fist fights in the street, you know, with knives and guns. And, and more often than not, that's not what's happening, you know. Uh, you got some poor smut, and he's hunkered down on a bivouac or a post or a trench or on a ship, and he can't see the enemy, he doesn't he, he doesn't come to grips with the enemy, you know, something goes boom, and he's floating in the water, you know, or something goes boom, and he's dead, you know, so, so you know, it, it becomes it becomes difficult, particularly when uh, war is so chaotic and confusing, you know, and everybody sort of has a different understanding of, you know, this, this whole idea of the elephant, that nobody's ever really seen war for what it is. You know, unless you're God, I guess. But uh, but everybody has a particular perspective, and that perspective in, in just about every case has got, got flaws in it, including the people that were there at the time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like hmm, I don't think I understand what's going on here. I don't know why this happened. You know, uh, you, you get up the next morning after a particularly vicious fight somewhere, and the enemy trenches are are empty, and you're like, well, where the hell did they go? Mm-hmm. You know, you go all the way to the north of Guadalcanal, and they're gone. What happened? You know, right. well, they got on their ships in the dead of night, and they left. You know, you have some places where there's there's not even a battle because the enemy just packed up and left, and the enemy went somewhere else. So that's you know, the great thing about history itself is it's so full of holes. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what we really know is very small, which should make us very very um, uh, humble, and should make us very very careful and cautious about trying to draw too many lessons learned from history, particularly, particularly, you know, uh, you know, what I would call the big lessons learned, you know, um, you know, what history will tend to do is to give you insights, you know, like, Ooh, you know, do I, am I really seeing this for what it is? Mm -hmm. You know, and again, in military history, the stakes are, the stakes are, uh, uh, as high as they get in human interaction. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's life or death, uh, you know, of people, of, of militaries, of governments, of the state, mm-hmm. of civilizations, of cultures. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
So, you know, there's just the, the battlefield, the campaign trail, the war is littered with question marks. Um, and, uh, and I kind of knew that going into this, that there was going to be a lot of things and I was going to be like, well, sure hope that is correct because, <laughs> you know, this particular insight that I'm going to offer is based on sort of that number. You know, one thing that you can tell though is, which is good about us, you know, and again, the more recent you get, the harder it becomes, which is you sort of know how things work out. You do know, for example, the battle like Waterloo, which by the way, it's not in this collection. You know, you do know that's the last battle of a 23-year war that takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a long peace ensues, a long general peace ensues in Europe after that. You know, but at the time, there were a lot of people that weren't convinced that was that was it, that they were going to have 100 years of Pax Britannica after that was over, you know. Mm-hmm. There were still a lot of guys kind of looking this way and that way, like anything could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, uh, there's a lot of question marks out there that... And we'll never get them all, but that's why history is such a great profession. Because uh, you know, you can spend you can spend your whole life until you finally go to the grave. You know, being a being a sleuth, being a being a crime scene detective. You know, being being the forensics guy trying to figure out what the hell happened and and maybe how can we avoid that in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm more about avoiding things, not kind of going out and finding trouble, but kind of like, hey, how can we like, you know. The best thing to do with a submarine, for example, is to avoid it. You don't look for them, you avoid them. <laughs> you know, so if they're sitting out there by themselves with nothing to shoot out, they're useless. You know, you've defeated it yeah. if you do that. If you, you know, so the best submarine warfare is find out where they are and avoid them. You know, and then then just let them sit out there and you know and and, and die of boredom. You know, and of course, unless they've got ballistic missiles, hmm. uh, that's a completely different thing. Right. By the way, we don't have. Uh, I don't think we have any nuclear disasters in here. Um, of course, you know, we could have put that in there. So that's probably, that's probably one of the ones that, that, you know, would be in the 100 versus Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but we actually, we don't actually have that in the book. So the people, people need to be forewarned. You're, you're not going to get a, you're not going to get that. I do talk about that in my, in my other books, um, in eyewitness specific theater and military history of Japan. I talk about uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, and again, if we're going to, you know, if we're looking for technology being a big factor, well, you know, that, that's probably one of those rare times in history where it's almost entirely the disasters of Hiroshima and Nagasaki can be put down to new technology, but uh, that's pretty rare in history. Yeah. Though I would say that the threat that the Soviet Union was about to move into Japan, Japanese territory, um, seemed to have a bit of a factor there in the decision as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. Um, the uh, again, if you if you uh, and I'm going to tell your readers that here's a book that's uh, that's that's uh, by a by a publisher that you probably recognize, uh, Naval History Press. So the book about that is something called Hell to Pay. So it's about the the, the plan for downfall for the American invasion of Japan, which was going to consist of uh, Cornet and Olympic, um, and that goes that goes into all of that in, in loving loving detail. But uh, as far as doing a 1,300-word 1300, 1300 chapter, because these are about 1,300 to 2,000-word sort of chapters for each one of these disasters, otherwise the book would have been, you know, a 1,000 pages long. Even so, it's, it's pretty long. It, it, it's, pushing, it's pushing 400 pages, so it's, it's a pretty long book. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's in a nice format, with, and there's math. So, so there, are, there are some math, there are some pictures in it, uh, um, uh, again, maps are they're more utilitarian than anything else. They're not going to be anything that cartographers are going to go to the... But there's some, there's some good stuff in there, and we've, we've got some pictures in it, too, that uh, kind of capture things, uh, you know. And some of the captions are fun. Like, for example, the Tudor Forest, which is one of the disasters we have in there. Um, we've got a woodcut, you know, of Armenians as German tribes attacking, you know. And, uh, and we know, you know, note the dress is probably patterned after a much later period i.e. when the woodcut was made, like, in the Renaissance, right? So right. they all look like 13th century soldiers and warriors, not not soldiers and warriors from the first century. Right. So <laughs> that's fun. You know, here you got, I'm looking at this woodcut, and here's a knife. You know, like, oh, I didn't know the Romans had knife, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. artistic license. Yeah, I know. I mean, you got to look. But that, that's in there. I mean, there's some little things like that there. So the... Uh, 
so the book has got some stuff like that in it. Uh, uh, as far as the price goes, I'm not to blame for that. So uh, <laughs> don't blame me. It's not my fault. I, it's not, I'm not the one that made that decision. So if you've got any problems with the price, just uh, take it up with the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um... So I know, so history history research can be kind of dry, but did you come across anything that had any kind of emotional impact on you, either something really amusing or something that kind of sad for you to to come across? Well, I know about the Typing Rebellion, that it was this huge, this huge holocaust that takes place in China that almost nobody in the West knows about. Um, so, you know, but if I hadn't known about it and, and, uh, I probably would have been very, very upset, uh, you know, to, to realize that, that, you know, this kind of Christian cult, uh, the typing, the kingdom of heavenly peace, where this guy can see Jesus Christ's Chinese brother, you know, it leads to at least 20 million deaths, hmm. you know, in a period of about 20 years. So that's about a million a year. And it's not the only thing going on in China. I mean, if you, if you, if, you know, some people will pump the numbers up because, There'll be all these other rebellions that are taking place in China. If you throw those numbers in, it's, it's just horrifying. It's like, well, you know, this is with 19th century technology, and they're killing, you know, a million people a year yeah. in central China. You know, how could that be? How did that happen? Well, it happens because, you know, you've got about 500 million Chinese, and when you give them all, you know, swords and spears and, and muskets, uh, they can kill a lot of each other. You know, if, 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 it's, if it's a really bitter, 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 bitter kind of a, a warfare taking place. Uh, mm-hmm. And China won't get a break. I mean, when, when we get to the 20th century, you know, she'll pretty much be at war from 1911 until 1953. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you add up all those numbers, they're probably pretty bad, too. Yeah. So, uh, although she'll get her independence, so you can't really call that a military disaster. And Chinese will sort of create herself as a, as a, as a modern one-party, you know, communist state. Mm-hmm. Um uh, as far as emotional, probably the you know the biggest one is the is the narrative about Iraq from 2003 to 2011. So what I wanted to do with that was kind of close the book a little bit controversial and saying, well, here's something that we sort of looked at as a victory with the surge and the narrative of the surge, and you know, in just three or two or three years later, that the the entire gloss of that victory in Iraq is completely uh, completely gone uh, with the fall of Mosul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in this military that we reputedly had trained to be able to protect Iraq, you know, uh, from either a, a recurrence of insurgency or, or an invasion from somewhere else is just completely, uh, completely inadequate to uh, protect, uh, you know, almost a third of the country. In fact, you know, some people think that if we hadn't intervened, that they would have made it a lot further south. I don't think uh, ISIS would have ever captured the whole country, but it certainly would have been a much, much bloodier, longer affair, and Iran probably would have had to intervene in a major way just to keep the government from Baghdad from falling. So, hmm. so uh, and again, you know, you can make the argument, well, it's not over yet, right? So, um, so that's probably the most emotional thing, was, was that whole thing with, with, uh, with uh, Iraqi freedom and, and me extending the, extending the timeline there. And that was, that was I, you know, that was probably, that was probably the most sort of, um, so, uh, how would you say it, argumentative thing that I did in the whole book to sort of make a point um, about hubris. Um, but uh, but that, that's probably the most emotional thing in the whole thing that I wrote. And, um, other than that, everything else is, I'm really just trying to be objective and tell a narrative. You know, I, I tell a story. Tell, hey, what's the narrative here? You know, Gustavus Adolphus shows up with a bunch of Swedish officers and a new set of tactics and doctrine and forms, you know, this professional army that uh, that uh, turns things around for a little while in the Thirty Years' War, you know. So, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, this guy, uh, uh, Henry Tudor, you know, is, is, is pretty much, you know, just about defeated, you know. There's no way he's ever going to get get the kingdom, you know, but, you know, all these sort of things happen, you know, on the road to Bosworth, and, and all of a sudden he's, you know, he's, He's king, you know. He's, you know, the greatest warrior in England. Who was Richard III? Who was a fantastic warrior. After the Earl of Warwick is killed, you know, Richard III's sort of the guy, you know, Richard Duke of York. So, so you know, so there's these really fascinating stories, and uh, and you know, and they're and they're and they're set not against sort of this idea of victory, but against this idea of 
defeat. And uh, because I think we learn more from defeat than we do from victory. I, I think uh, victory is a pretty is a pretty thin school uh, for future victory. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean you can still keep winning for all sorts of reasons, but but in terms of you know sort of maintaining that edginess and that adaptive, innovative, learning edge, you know. Nothing does that for a nation like losing a war, losing it badly. Mm-hmm. You did mention that you ended up having to write a large part of the book. Did it cause any delays in meeting deadlines, or were, were there any other issues in getting oh, the book yeah. finished or oh, published? Yeah, yeah, no, no. The book was supposed to be out last year. Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think probably when we take a look at it, the overall depth, there were some other things that also delayed the production of the book. Uh, but yeah, it uh, that was that was the biggest thing was was when was when uh, when the first guy said, "Well, I'm not going to be able to do as many as many of these uh, uh, disasters as I initially thought I was going to be able to do." Mm-hmm. And then and then pretty late in the project, the uh, the other author kind of dropped out and said, "Well, here's what I've got." So I had to go and take everything he had and kind of go over it all again. And, and and go through it and make sure, you know, everything made sense and, and then we had the proper uh, resources accounted for and everything, so, yeah. Did, did the publisher consider dropping the project, or did you cut, uh, step up? Or? Well, they would have. I mean, uh, 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 they, you know, that, that's just a case that you don't meet your contract and then you send your, you send your advance check back and, you know, Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get a job with that publisher again. So I'm not yeah. a big fan of that. I I don't like to burn bridges with publishers. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I try to meet my deadlines and I try to finish my project. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I don't know. Maybe that's the military upbringing. You know, <laughs> you accomplish the mission no matter what, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah. You, you're, your listeners might not know that I'm a retired I'm a retired Navy commander. So I do have a little bit of military training. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not as much as an army guy, but you know, for Navy guys, not bad. <laughs> yeah, but try to have an army guy uh, sail, sail a boat or, or captain a ship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's hard too. You know, most of my experience is, is an airplane, but yeah, okay. yeah, I had to learn how to drive a ship. That's that's not so fun. A ninety-five thousand ton aircraft carrier, whoo, those days, uh, you know, they're fast though, so they can handle pretty well. But you know, if you start turning too fast with those things, you know, planes start falling off the decks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so do you have another... Stand by for five-speed turns, right? Yeah. Um, what's your... Do you have a, another writing project coming up? Well, I, I'm i looking... Um, I haven't started anything. You know, most of what I've got going on right now are articles. So, mm-hmm. uh, I've got a, I've got an article in for uh, the Naval Institute uh, General Pride update. So, I've got a I've got an article in with them, and uh, because they're still accepting those and judging those, I'm not even going to tell anybody about what that is. Mm-hmm. So I've got an article in for that, um, and then I'm working on two different articles uh, uh, in parallel. So I, I usually have a couple articles and book reviews that I'm always doing, So, but I don't have any books going on right now. The two articles I'm working on, one of them is, uh, one of them is uh, we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the Washington Naval Conference. Everybody calls it the Washington Naval Conference. Actually, uh, in 1921, the, the the official name of the conference was the Washington Conference. It was the Washington Arms Limitation Conference. So it wasn't supposed to be just navies. The, the sort of the number one agenda item on on the agenda that the Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes had for everybody was was to try to figure out how to stop the naval arms race. But but uh, naval armaments weren't the only thing on the table. So the 100th anniversary of that is 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 less than two years away, at the beginning of the conference. And uh, uh, the actual anniversary of the treaties, the nine treaties, including the Naval Limitation Treaty that came out of the Washington Conference, is two years away, almost exactly two years away next next month. So so I'm trying to write an article about that um, and that includes a, uh, an argument uh, or a proposal that we... So we have another one. So we invite all major powers to Washington and, and do another one and try to get arms around arms limitation and arms races and stuff like that. Um, so that'll be fun because uh, I've talked about this project for years and years now. Everybody tells me it's, you know, well, why write a conference? 
on a centennial of the conference is a good idea, but, you know, telling the, the security policy that reached back in Washington that they need to know another one is that's, that's probably not a good idea. So I'm going to do it. So, you know, I always, when people don't like something and they think it's a bad idea, I tend to go, hmm, I, well, all right. So maybe it's not a bad idea. Maybe it's really a good idea and it needs more exposure. So I'm working on that one. Um, and I don't have anybody to publish it yet. I'm just, I'm just working on it right now. I've got about 2,000 words done on that one. Um, and then uh, it'll probably be about five, 6,000 words when I'm done. And then uh, the other one that I'm working on, and I'm blanking on it right now, because uh, I just I just had the idea the other day, and uh, and darn I can't remember. So I've got another one. I have these files that I keep, and I put all my ideas in the files, and I start to flush them out, and I have outlines. And wait a second, wait. Yeah. So uh, the other one that I'm working on is uh, on militarism. So uh, I'm looking at this idea of military control of the nation's policy by uh, civilian proxy. So that sounds really, really complicated. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually start that with, uh, with an article on the Washington Conference where somebody makes the opposite argument that, that Japan's Navy sort of was brought into control by Japan's government by using the military as civilian proxy. In this case, the civilians are gonna be proxies for the military. So I'm gonna write an article about militarism, uh, in the United States. I'm gonna be following, uh, I'm gonna kind of be working on on some of the ideas that, that uh, Andrew Bacevich uses in his his book, The New American Militarism, the second edition uh, of that book, which just came out a couple of years ago. Hmm. So, so it's uh, it's going to be an article on on, on militarism uh, in the United States. So, kind of looking at this idea that now we have civilians who are former military, and so you've got sort of military control uh, by civilian proxies. So that'll that'll kind of be the that's that article that I'm working on. Uh, as far as books go, I do have a book project in mind, but it's just it's just a shapeless form right now. Uh, I've never done a biography, and I'm thinking about doing a biography. So, uh, so I've got a Navy admiral from the 20th century, a guy named Mark Bristol. He was the uh, basically the high commissioner of Turkey after World War One, the de facto ambassador of the United States to to the emerging Ataturk government in Turkey. Uh, and then later on, he's commanding in China during the whole period of, you know, the Sand Pebbles and and, uh, and the Chinese Civil War and uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao, and Mao Zedong and all those guys. Mm. Uh, and then he ends up uh, on my favorite organization of all time, the General Board of the Navy. So, uh-huh. so I'm thinking about writing a, a, a biography of him. It's not a new idea. A couple of years ago, a guy named Al Mopi, who's a really, really good naval military historian, I said, hey, somebody needs to write a biography of this guy. So it's been on my do list for about 10 years. So huh. so maybe I'll get a chance to do that next year. Okay. Um, where can people... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I got more projects than I know what to do with. I, I used to have my whole front of my desk covered with little yellow stickies with ideas, huh. you know. And <laughs> yeah, you got to prioritize. Whenever I was bored, I'd take one down and kind of write an article or a book or something. Mm-hmm. So where, where can people find you on the web? Do you have social media, website, anything like that? Yeah, there's a couple places. Uh, so uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at JKUEHN50. So if you want to read my provocative, incendiary, and, and upsetting views on Twitter, Twitter's, that's what Twitter's for. <laughs> um, I would give my Facebook, but I don't do anything on Facebook. I just look at the pictures that my brothers and sisters post to their kids and their grandkids. So that's all I do on Facebook. Okay. Um, I am on HNET. At H War, H Dash War. I have a monthly uh, blog that I do for them called Hand Grenade of the Month. And it's usually something provocative. Uh, you know, that's why I call it a hand grenade. So I'll throw something mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, everybody says Doug McCarthy was a great general, but he, he really wasn't that great of a general, and here's why. And, and then I'll kind of let people kind of, you know, throw hand grenades back at me. So that's on H War, H Net. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's called the Hand Grenade of the Month. You could Google it. So if you Google Hand Grenade of the Month, uh, H4, you'll, you'll probably get me. Okay. Um, and that, that's really the only places that I'm kind of on the net at. I'm not really on the net anywhere else. I don't have my own website. Uh, I, I don't really have my own uh, blog uh, that I run. Uh, so I kind of I rely on Twitter and, and the kindness of HNET to kind of get my ideas out there on a, on a semi-regular basis.
Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I appreciate you guys talking to me uh, about uh, 100 military uh, 100 military disasters. Um, you know, it, it'll probably be in libraries, so the people that like libraries can probably find it. And you, I don't know if it'll ever be on audiobook. Uh, uh, it's not a boring book, so but you probably don't have to worry about falling asleep at the wheel of listening to it on audiobook. I'm <laughs> sure they'll have it on Kindle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, other than that, I appreciate a chance to kind of talk about military history for for a couple hours. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. That's what I like to do. It's my favorite thing. (laughs) Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org on YouTube at War Scholar 1945, on Facebook at War Scholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar, and on Twitter at War Scholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you. I'm speaking with Dr. John Kuhn, co-author of The 100 Worst Military Disasters in History. You can find him by Googling Hand Grenade of the Month and H-War, and you'll find his column. If you like this podcast, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com or warscholar1945 on YouTube and like me and follow me on those sites. Now back to the podcast.